Chapter 16 of the Book of Camping and Woodcraft, a guidebook for those who travel in the wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The Book of Camping and Woodcraft, a guidebook for those who travel in the wilderness, by Horace Kephart chapter sixteen emergency foods living off the country but mice and rats and such small deer have been tom's food for seven long year when men go to explore an untracked wilderness with no equipment but what they must carry on their own backs a good part of the time there can be no such thing as a trifle in their outfit every article in it and every part of every article has weight and that weight small though it be should be sternly challenged as to whether it is indispensable whether something more essential might not be substituted for it the very buckle on one's belt may some day be balanced in tortured imagination against its weight in meal i have tried several kinds of army emergency rations but have not found any that is suitable for explorers use save as an accessory when used continuously they make one's stomach rebel the best of them, I think, is the pea-meal sausage that is known by its German name of Erbstwurst. But although it makes a good soup or porridge for an occasional quick meal, as an article of steady diet it is not as palatable nor as wholesome as an equal weight of bacon and hardtack. The problem of an emergency ration is not merely one of condensing the utmost nutriment into the least bulk and weight. One cannot live on Swiss cheese or the yolk of hard-boiled eggs, however nutritious they may be in theory. The stuff must be digestible. It must neither nauseate nor clog the system. When a man is faint from hunger, his stomach must not be forced to any uncommon stunts. And so I hold that a half-ration of palatable food that is readily assimilated does more good than a full quota of stuff that taxes a man's gastric strength military precedent in such matters is not a safe guide for explorers who may be cut off from their base of supplies not for a few days only but for weeks and months at a time canned meat for example is unfit for the human stomach and is likely to sicken the man who persists in using it as a steady diet for those who go far from civilization the only emergency food worthy the name is such as is nutritious and wholesome to a man who has been weakened by much toil and fasting and such as can be eaten with relish at the hundredth consecutive serving it is my opinion that the best efforts of army commissary and medical departments in this respect fall far below the emergency foods that have been used by the indians of north and south america for many thousands of years these latter preparations in the forms of parched meal jerked meat and pemmican have also been the mainstays of all our white frontiersmen and explorers who became adept in wildcraft the first european settlers in this country were ignorant of the ways of the wilderness some of them had been old campaigners in civilized lands but they did not know the resources of american forests nor how to utilize them the consequence was that many starved in a land of plenty the survivors learned to pocket their pride and learn from the natives who however contemptible they might seem in other respects were past masters in the art of going light but right 
an almost naked savage could start out alone and cross from the atlantic to the mississippi without buying or begging from anybody and without robbing unless from other motives than hunger this was not merely due to the abundance of game there were large tracts of the wilderness where game was scarce or where it was unsafe to hunt the indian knew the edible plants of the forest and how to extract good food from roots that were rank or poisonous in their natural state but he could not depend wholly upon such fortuitous findings his mainstay on long journeys was a small bag of parched and pulverized maize a spoonful of which stirred in water and swallowed at a draught sufficed him for a meal when nature's storehouse failed all of our early chroniclers praised this parched meal as the most nourishing food known in new england it went by the name of no cake a corruption of the indian word of no kick william wood who in sixteen thirty four wrote the first topographical account of the massachusetts colonies says of no cake that quote, it is indian corn parched in the hot ashes the ashes being sifted from it it is afterwards beaten to powder and put into a long leathering bag trussed at the indian's back like a knapsack out of which they take three spoonfuls a day roger williams the founder of rhode island said that a spoonful of no cake mixed with water made him many a good meal roger did not affirm however that it made him a square meal nor did he mention the size of his spoon in virginia this preparation was known by another indian name rockahominy which is not as our dictionaries assume a synonym for plain hominy but a quite different thing that most entertaining of our early woodcraftsmen colonel bird of westover who ran the dividing line between virginia and north carolina in seventeen twenty eight twenty nine speaks of it as follows rockahominy is nothing but indian corn parched without burning and reduced to powder the fire drives out all the watery parts of the corn leaving the strength of it behind and this being very dry becomes much lighter for carriage and less liable to be spoilt by the moist air thus half a dozen pounds of this spriteful bread will sustain a man for as many months provided he husband it well and always spare it when he meets with venison which as i said before may be safely eaten without any bread at all by what i have said a man needs not encumber himself with more than eight or ten pounds of provisions though he continue half a year in the woods these and his gun will support him very well during the time without the least danger of keeping one single fast the best of our border hunters and warriors such as boone and kenton and crockett relied upon this indian dietary when starting on their long hunts or when undertaking forced marches more formidable than any regular troops could have withstood so did lewis and clark on their ever memorable expedition across the unknown west modern explorers who do their outfitting in london or new york and who think it needful to command a small army of porters and gun-bearers when they go into savage lands might do worse than read the simple annals of that trip by lewis and clark if they care to learn what real pioneering was in some parts of the south and west the pulverized parched corn was called coal flour or cold flour by the delawares it was called sitamon the indians of louisiana gave it the name gofio in mexico it is known as pinolet spanish pronunciation pinolet english pinolee 
it is still the standby of native travelers in spanish american countries and is used by those hardy hunters our contemporary ancestors in the southern appalachians quite recently one of my campmates in the great smoky mountains expressed his surprise that any one should be ignorant of so plain a necessity of the hunter's life he claims that no other food is so good for a man's wind in mountain climbing some years ago mr t s van dyke author of the still hunter and other well-known works on field sports published a very practical article on emergency rations in a weekly paper from which as it is now buried where few can consult it i take the liberty of making the following quotation Quote, la comida del desierto the food of the desert or pinole as it is generally called knocks the hind sights off all american condensed food it is the only form in which you can carry an equal weight and bulk of nutriment on which alone one can if necessary live continuously for weeks and even months without any disorder of stomach or bowels the principle of pinolet is very simple if you should eat a breakfast of cornmeal mush alone and start out for a hard tramp you will feel hungry in an hour or two though at the table the de-wrinkling of your abdomen may have reached the hurting point but if instead of distending the meal so much with water and heat you had simply mixed it in cold water and drunk it you could have taken down three times the quantity in one-tenth of the time you would not feel the difference at your waistband but you would feel it mightily in your legs especially if you have a heavy rifle on your back it works a little on the principle of dried apples though it is quite an improvement there is no danger of explosion it swells to suit the demand and not too suddenly suppose now instead of raw cornmeal we make it not only drinkable but positively good this is easily done by parching to a very light brown before grinding and grinding just fine enough to mix so as to be drinkable but not pasty as flour would be good wheat is as good as corn and perhaps better while the mixture is very good common rolled oats browned in a pan in the oven and run through a spice mill is as good and easy to make it out of as anything a coffee mill may do if it will be set fine enough ten percent of popped corn ground in with it will improve the flavor so much that your children will get away with it all if you don't hide it wheat and corn are hard to grind but the small enterprise spice mill will do it you may also mix some ground chocolate with it for flavor which with popped corn makes it very fine indigestible your granny's nightcap you must remember that it is quote very filling for the price end quote and go slow with it until you have found your coefficient now for the application the mexican rover of the desert will tie a small sack of pinolet behind his saddle and start for a trip of several days it is the lightest of food and in the most portable shape sand-proof bug and fly-proof and everything wherever he finds water he stirs a few ounces in a cup I never weighed it, but four seemed about enough at the time for an ordinary man, drinks it in five seconds, and is fed for five or six hours. If he has jerky, he chews that as he jogs along, but if he has not, he will go through the longest trip and come out strong and well on Pinolet alone. End quote. Shooting and Fishing, Volume 20, page 248. 
not having any spice mill i pulverized the corn in a hominy mortar which is only a three foot cut off of a two foot log with a hole burnt and gouged in the end and a wooden pestle the hole in the mortar is of smaller diameter at the bottom than at the top so that each blow of the pestle throws most of the corn upward and thus it is evenly pulverized i often carry a small bag of this parched meal when mountaineering four heaping tablespoons four ounces stirred in a pint of water is enough to fill the stomach a few raisins or a chunk of sweet chocolate or maple sugar make the meal quite satisfactory generally i prefer to use only half the above quantity at a time and take it oftener during the day jerky or jerked meat has nothing to do with our common word jerk it is an anglicized form of the spanish charquis which is itself derived from the quichua peruvian charqui meaning flesh cut in flakes and dried without salt it is the same as the african biltong those who have not investigated the matter may be surprised to learn that the round of beef is sixty one per cent water and that even the common dried and smoked meat of the butcher shops contains fifty four per cent water the proportions of water in some other common foods are bacon seventeen per cent fat salt pork eight cornmeal twelve and a half wheat flour twelve wheat bread thirty five dried beans twelve and a half fresh potatoes sixty three to condense the nutritive properties of these substances the water of course must be exhausted in ordinary dried beef this is only partially done because the pieces are too thick to jerk venison or any other kind of lean meat proceed as follows if you can afford to be particular select only the tender parts of the meat otherwise use all of the lean cut it in strips about half an inch thick if you have time you may soak them a day in strong brine if not place the flakes of meat on the inside of the hide and mix with them about a pint and a half of salt for a whole deer or two or three quarts for an elk or moose also some pepper these condiments are not necessary but are added merely for seasoning cover the meat with the hide to keep flies out and let it stand thus for about two hours to let the salt work in then drive four forked stakes in the ground so as to form a square of eight or ten feet the forks being about four feet from the ground lay two poles across from fork to fork parallel and across these lay thin poles about two inches apart lay the strips of meat across the poles and under them build a small fire to dry and smoke the meat do not let the fire get hot enough to cook the meat but only to partially cook it so that the flesh becomes dry as a chip the best fuel is birch especially black birch because it imparts a pleasant flavor this will reduce the weight of the meat about one half and will cure it so that it will keep indefinitely you may have to keep up the fire for twenty-four hours the meat of an old bull will of course be as tough as sole leather but in any case it will retain its flavor and sustenance when pounded pretty fine jerky makes excellent soup but it is good enough as it is and a man can live on it exclusively without suffering an inordinate craving for bread in the dry air of the plains meat does not putrefy even when unsalted and it may be dried in the sun without fire elk flesh dried in the sun does not keep as well as that of deer 
the staple commissary supply of arctic travellers and of hunters and traders in the far northwest is pemmican this is not so palatable as jerky at least when carelessly prepared but it contains more nutriment in a given bulk and is better suited for cold climates on account of the fat mixed with it the old-time hudson bay pemmican was made from buffalo meat in the following manner first a sufficient number of bags about two and a half feet were made from the hides of old bulls that were unfit for robes the lean meat was then cut into thin strips as for jerky and dried in the sun for two or three days or over a fire until it was hard and brittle it was then pounded to a powder between two stones or by a flail on a sort of hide threshing floor with the edges pegged up the fat and marrow were then melted and mixed with the powdered lean meat to a paste or the bags were filled with the lean and then the fat was run in on top after this the mass was well rammed down and the bags were sewed up tight no salt was used but the pemmican thus prepared would keep sweet for years in the cool climate of the north a piece as large as one's fist when soaked and cooked would make a meal for two men when there was flour in the outfit the usual allowance of pemmican was one and one-fourth to one and a half pounds a day per man with one pound of flour added this was for men performing the hardest labor and whose appetites were enormous service berries were sometimes added officers pemmican was made from buffalo humps and marrow pemmican nowadays is made from beef bleasdale cameron gives the following details a beef dressing six hundred and ninety eight pounds yields forty seven pounds of first class pemmican forty seven pounds of second class pemmican and twenty three pounds of dried meat including tongues a total of a hundred and seventeen pounds dried the total nutritive strength is thus reduced in weight to one-sixth that of fresh beef such pemmican costs the canadian government about forty cents a pound equivalent to six pounds of fresh beef pemmican is sometimes eaten raw sometimes boiled with flour into a thick soup or porridge called robibu or mixed with flour and water and fried like sausage it is known as ratio the pemmican made nowadays for arctic expeditions is prepared from the round of beef cut into strips and kiln dried until friable then ground fine and mixed with beef sweat a little sugar and a few currants it is compressed into cakes and then packed so as to exclude moisture ordinary beef extract is not a food if a man tried to subsist on it he would starve to death but there is a way of concentrating much of the nourishment of beef or veal in the form of little cubes of a gluey consistency from which a strengthening soup can quickly be prepared it is superior to the concentrated soups sold in our markets take a leg of young beef veal or venison old meat will not jelly easily pare off every bit of fat and place the lean meat in a large pot boil it steadily and gently for seven or eight hours until the meat is reduced to rags skimming off from time to time the grease that arises then pour this strong broth into a large wide stewpan place it over a moderate fire and let it simmer gently until it comes to a thick jelly when it gets so thick that there may be danger of scorching it place the vessel over boiling water and stir it very frequently until when cold it will have the consistency of glue 
cut this substance into small cubes and lay them singly where they can become thoroughly dry or if you prefer run the jelly into sausage skins and tie up the ends a cube or thick slice of this glaze dissolved in hot water makes an excellent soup a small piece allowed to melt in one's mouth is strengthening on the march this is a very old recipe being mentioned in bird's history of the dividing line and recommended along with rockahominy the above can be made in camp when opportunity offers thus laying in enough concentrated soup stock to last a month which is quite convenient as it takes at least half a day to make good soup from the raw materials and these are not always at hand when most wanted it has been demonstrated times without number that civilized men no less than savages can keep in good health and perform the hardest kind of work on a diet of either meat alone or cereals alone a cold climate being more favorable for the former and a hot one for the latter personally if i were going afoot into an uninhabited land i would cut out all utensils save a small aluminum pail and a tin cup and would carry no provisions other than some rockahominy in a waterproof silk bag some tea and a little hoard of salt i would carry no meat at all for if by the time my meal was half gone i had not found game or fish it would be time to retreat when a man deliberately stakes his life upon the chance of finding food in an unknown land he should begin early in the game to habituate his digestive organs to whatever nutriment the country may afford thereby hoarding his packed rations rather than fall back upon unaccustomed food as a last extremity when his stomach has been seriously weakened by starvation he should especially get used to living on meat straight this will at first cause some bowel troubles as every one knows who has partaken freely of venison as soon as he got to the woods but this soon wears off when one's system is in a healthy condition it is a curious fact that a man who has been eating nothing but game and fish for several months is unable at first to assimilate the food of civilization when he returns to it even though he eats more sparingly than his appetite demands he will be troubled with indigestion for a week or more bread and vegetables will lie on his stomach like lead and he will suffer from constipation it goes without saying that men traveling through a barren region cannot be fastidious in their definition of game all's meat that comes to a hungry man's pot a few words here may not be amiss as to the edible qualities of certain animals that are not commonly regarded as game but which merit an explorer's consideration from the start also as to some that are not to be recommended probably most sportsmen know that coon is not bad eating especially when young if it is properly prepared but how many would think to remove the scent glands before roasting a coon these glands should be sought for and extracted from all animals that have them before the meat is put in the pot properly dressed and if necessary parboiled in two or three waters even muskrats woodchucks and fish-eating birds can be made palatable prairie dog is as good as squirrel the flesh of the porcupine is good and that of the skunk is equal to roast pig beaver meat is very rich and cloying and in old animals is rank but the boiled liver and tail are famous tidbits wherever the beaver is found a man would have to be hard-pressed to tackle any of the other fur-bearers as food except of course bear and possum the flesh of all members of the cat tribe wild cats lynxes and panthers is excellent 
dr hart merriam declares that panther flesh is better than any other kind of meat the english ruxton who lived in the far west in the time of bridger and the sublets and fitzpatrick says quote, throwing aside all the qualms and conscientious scruples of a fastidious stomach it must be confessed that dog meat takes a high rank in the wonderful variety of cuisine afforded to the gourmand and the gourmet by the prolific mountains now when the bill of fare offers such tempting viands as buffalo beef venison mountain mutton turkey grouse wildfowl hares rabbits beaver tails etc etc the station assigned to dog as number two in the list can be well appreciated number one in delicacy of flavor richness of meat and other good qualities being the flesh of panthers which surpasses every other and all put together lewis and clark say of dog flesh quote, the greater part of us have acquired a fondness for it while we subsisted on that food we were fatter stronger and in general enjoyed better health than at any period since leaving the buffalo country again they say quote, it is found to be a strong healthy diet preferable to lean deer or elk and much superior to horse flesh in any state End quote. they reported that horse flesh was unwholesome as well as repellent many other travelers and residents in the early west commended dog meat but the animals that they speak of were such as had been specifically fattened by the indians for food and not starved and hard-worked sledge animals one who was driven by starvation to eat wolf's flesh says that it quote, tastes exactly as a dirty wet dog smells and it is gummy and otherwise offensive end quote but it seems that tastes differ or more likely that all wolves are not alike ivar foshim of sverdrup's second norwegian polar expedition says they were two she-wolves in very much better condition than beasts of prey usually are with the exception of bears the fat really looked so white and good that we felt inclined to taste it and if we did that we thought we might as well try the hearts at the same time although most people will consider this a dish more extraordinary than appetizing i think prejudice plays a large part here as at any rate we found the meat far better than we expected i am assured by more than one white man who has eaten them that the flesh of snakes and lizards is as good as chicken or frog's legs one of my friends however draws the line at the prairie rattler once when he was on a u.s geological survey he came near starving in the desert and had to swallow his scruples along with a snake diet probably he said a big fat diamond rattler might be all right but the little prairie rattler is too swedish for my taste it's no comparison to puff adder puff adder my boy is out of sight this much i can swallow by proxy but when dan beard speaks approvingly of hellbenders as a side dish i must confess that i'm like kipling's elephant when the alligator had him by the nose quote, this is too much for me if dan ever really ate a hellbender he is the most reckless daredevil i ever heard of another of my acquaintances declares that the prejudice against crow real corvus is not well founded the great gray owl is good roasted despite what it may be when biled the flesh of the whippoorwill is excellent turtle eggs are better than those of the domestic fowl soft-shell turtles deposit their eggs on sandbars about the third week in june 
it is the testimony of gourmets who survived the siege of paris that cats rats and mice are the most misprized of all animals from the culinary point of view stewed puss says one of them is quote, by far more delicious than stewed rabbit those who have not tasted couscousou of cat have never tasted anything End quote. anyway who are we to set up standards as to the fitness or unfitness of things to eat we shudder with horror at the idea of eating dog or cat but of such a downright filthy animal as a pig we eat ears nose feet tail and intestines how about our mouldy and putrid cheeses our boiled cabbage and sauerkraut raw hamburgers lamfries and high game the hardihood of him who first swallowed a raw oyster and if snails are good why not locusts dragonflies and grubs i tell you from experience that when you get to picking the skippers out of your pork and begrudge them the holes they have made in it you will agree that any kind of fresh wild meat that is not carrion is clean and wholesome casper whitney after describing his menu of frozen raw meat in the barren grounds says quote, i have no doubt some of my readers will be disgusted by this recital and as i sit here at my desk writing with but to reach out and press a button for dinner luncheon what i will i can hardly realize that only a few months ago i choked an indian until he gave up a piece of moussac intestine he had stolen from me one must starve to know what one will eat i trust that none of my readers may be cast down by reading this somewhat lugubrious chapter after all it is not so bad to learn new dishes but think of the predicament of that poor white he was a missionary to the eskimo i believe who being cast adrift on an ice floe and essaying to eat his boots did incontinently sneeze his false teeth into the middle of baffin's bay perhaps the greatest privation that a civilized man suffers next to having no meat is to lack salt and tobacco in the old days they used to burn the outside of meat and sprinkle gunpowder on it in lieu of salt but in this age of smokeless powder we are denied even that consolation the ashes of plants rich in nitre such as tobacco indian corn sunflower and the ashes of hickory bark have been recommended coville says that the ash of the palmate leaf sweet coltsfoot petasites palmata was highly esteemed by western indians as a substitute for salt to obtain the ash the stem and leaves were first rolled up into balls while still green and after being carefully dried they were placed on top of a very small fire on a rock and burned many indians even civilized ones like the koala cherokees do not use salt to this day strange to say the best substitute for salt is sugar especially maple sugar or syrup one soon can accustom himself to eat it even on meat among some of the northern tribes maple syrup not only takes the place of salt in cooking but is used for seasoning the food after it is served wild honey boiled and the wax skimmed off has frequently served me in place of sugar in my tea in army bread etc men who use tobacco can go a good while hungry without much grumbling so long as the weed holds out thou who when cares attack bids them avion and black care at the horseman's back perching unseatest but let tobacco play out and they are in a bad way substitutes for it may be divided into those that are a bit better than nothing and those that are worse among the latter may be rated tea yes tea is smoked by many a poor fellow in the far north 
it is said to cause a most painful irritation in the throat which is aggravated by the cold air of that region certainly it can have no effect on the nerves as tobacco for it is full of tannin and tannin destroys nicotine Kanikanik is usually made of poor tobacco mixed with the scrapings or shavings of other plants although the latter are sometimes smoked alone chief of the substitutes is the red osier dogwood cornus stalonifera or the related silky cornell c sericea commonly miscalled red willow these shrubs are very abundant in some parts of the north the dried inner bark is aromatic and very pungent highly narcotic and produces in those unused to it a heaviness sometimes approaching stupefaction young shoots are chosen or such of the older branches as still keep the thin red outer skin this skin is shaved off with a keen knife and thrown away then the soft brittle green inner bark is scraped off with the back of the knife and put aside for use or if wanted immediately it is left hanging to the stem in little frills and is crisped before the fire it is then rubbed between the hands into a form resembling leaf tobacco or is cut very fine with a knife and mixed with tobacco in the proportion of two of bark to one of the latter a more highly prized kinikinik is made from the leaves of the bearberry or arctostaphylos uva ursi called sacacomus by the canadian traders who sell it to the northern indians for more than the price of the best tobacco the leaves are gathered in the summer months being then milder than in winter inferior substitutes are the crumbled dried leaves of the smooth sumac rus glabra and the fragrant sumac r aromatica which like tea contain so much tannin that they generally produce bronchial irritation or sore throat in my chapters on camp cookery are described many processes for cooking without utensils but it may be asked how could one boil water without a kettle there are two ways of doing this one of them which many have heard of but few have seen is to split a log chop out of it a trough pour water in heat a number of stones red hot pick them up one at a time with a forked stick or with one bathed in the fire at its middle and bent into hairpin shape and drop them one by one into the water to do this successfully one must choose such stones as will neither burst in the fire nor shiver to pieces when dropped in the water another way which will be news to many is to boil the water in a bucket made of birch bark heated by direct action of the fire the only difficulty about this is in so fastening the sheet of bark below the water line that it will not leak take a thin sheet of birch bark free from knots or eyes and make a trough-shaped bucket as illustrated in another chapter pin the folds with green twigs below the water line pour the water in set the bucket on a bed of fresh coals that do not flame pile coals around it up almost to the water line and let it hum it might seem impossible to melt snow in such a bark utensil but the thing can be done when you know how place the bucket in the snow before the fire so it will not warp from the heat in front of it set a number of little forked sticks slanting backwards over the bucket and on each fork place a snowball thus let the snowballs melt into the bucket until the vessel is filled above the pins that hold it together then set the bucket on the coals and the water will boil in a few moments end of chapter 16